0: Welcome back to FOMO Sapiens, the show for people who don't just follow the crowd, but instead take their own path to success in business and in life. I'm your host, Patrick J. McGinnis, venture capitalist by day, author and podcaster by night, and FOMO Sapiens 24-7. Now, season eight is coming to a close. We've been talking to bold thinkers and we're just keeping it going, like amping it up as we get towards the end of the year today i'm talking to i think somebody who's really just the creativity part is the specialist part the most special part i guess would be correct english and he's building what i would argue is among the most creative clothing brands on the planet his name is steve tidball and he is the co-founder of volaback with his brother nick now Volaback is a London-based company that combines creativity and technology to create the clothes we need for an extreme future. In the last few years, Volaback has released the first clothing for Mars. It's built clothes from trash. It's made 100-year gear designed to outlive you. And that's crazy. And it's rethought how color is made using algae to create a new kind of black. Before founding Volabek with his brother, who is his twin, by the way, the pair spent 10 years as creative directors in advertising, winning multiple awards for their work with clients, including Adidas and Airbnb. Now, the story behind this interview is that I met Steve's brother, Nick, at Brilliant Minds. You might remember, I just talked about Brilliant Minds. And I was just, he spoke on the stage and he was amazing. And he swears a lot, actually. Sorry to tell everybody that, Nick. Sorry, but it's true. And so I said, I found him at like three in the morning at this rave that they did. And I said, you have to come on FOMO Sapiens, but you can't swear. And he said, actually, you should talk to my brother, Steve. He is the guy that does all the interviews. So, I mean, listen, they're twins. I'm happy to have either or both, but I got to talk to Steve and he was amazing. And you're just gonna love this conversation and you're gonna learn a bunch of stuff. First, you're gonna learn how the brothers take these big creative ideas and then actually make them into things that they can sell. So it's like, okay, let's make clothing for Mars, but actually, making something that people wanna buy as well, doing those two things at once, that is magical. Second, we're gonna learn how they use creative FOMO-centric marketing to create social proof and spur their business. And you're gonna hear the story about just like how there's some serendipity in there. One of their kind of clothing items made it onto the Jimmy Fallon show and went viral. And then, you know, that's the kind of stuff that you dream of. But we're also gonna learn how you capitalize on those lucky breaks and keep the momentum going. Now, my small ask as we're reaching the end of the year and the holidays, again, please consider going to FOMOSapiens.com and checking out the merch. I promise you will love it. If you order now, you can still get it in time for the end of the year for your holiday of choice. All right, and now onto the interview. As you know, I always start with the same question, and I started with this. What's a formative decision you've had to make to get to where you are today? Am I allowed to, or is it very strictly one? No, 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 You listen, you're my guest. You can do whatever you want.
1: <laughs> I'll go with the uh, the blood and guts one first. I was in a 4 by 4 in the middle of the Namibian desert, having been told six hours earlier that I had 30 minutes to live. And I was in the middle of a Namib Marathon, which is basically you have to run 80 miles and you have 24 hours to do it. And the temperature's in like 130s, like it's super high. And wow. I've been pulled out of the race and uh, with heat stroke, so it was unbelievably hot, but my teeth were chattering and I was covered in goosebumps. And I was basically, my body thought it was freezing to death, but actually it wasn't, it was overheating. And so when you lose all sense of, um, your body loses sense of perspective and it thinks it's really cold when actually you're just unbelievably hot and it does everything it can to heat you up. So I was pulled out of the race, stuck in a four by four, air conditioning on, drinking litres and litres and litres of cold water in the middle of a desert, thinking, wow, this is a bit surreal to fly from the UK to Africa to sit in a 4x4. And the critical decision I made is when my brother, who is my teammate, my twin brother and teammate, pulled into one of the checkpoints, I asked the doctors if I could continue the race and race the last two marathons with him, because he was thinking of dropping out. And I couldn't bear the idea that we would both flown to Africa only to drop out of a race. Now, that was an incredibly stupid decision in retrospect, <laughs> and I got seriously ill after it. However, what it showed me was that even when your body thinks it's absolutely on the brink, it's actually not. I did complete those last two marathons. We did finish the race. It was the first ultramarathon I'd ever finished. It was in unbelievably extreme conditions. And the thing that my body and brain told me, which is you cannot carry on. And if you do, you'll die, wasn't true. And that was kind of a really, really fascinating experience. And certainly now running a startup, when you're presented with so many other people's truths or realities where they go, this is absolutely definitively true. You look back on that experience and you go, well, this thing also seemed definitively true. And that seemed like I was on the brink of death, but I wasn't. And so that's a really genuinely formative experience I turn back on, where I check every decision I make and go, well... I'm being told this is the truth, but is it actually the truth? That was a really kind of like definitive moment. Yeah. So any to any doctors listening, that they, they know that's a really dumb decision. <laughs> you really should have just like. Don't gone need to, to be actor. a
0: doctor to know that. But
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, no. gone to a hotel, gone to a bed, and gone. You know, easy route out. The doctors told me to quit. A uh, another decision, far less kind of life and death, was my brother and I before we ran our company. We had what you describe as relatively cushy jobs in advertising. We worked for one of the biggest agencies in the world, a company called Chiat Day. And we had some sketches of a brand, which is now the brand we have today. And we took them to a guy called Lee clow who was our boss's 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 boss. And Lee wrote some of the greatest Apple ads of all time with Steve Jobs. Very, very famous guy in advertising. And we sort of timidly took him these little sketches and we said, hey, we've got these ideas. And he looked at us and he went, this is a clothing brand. It's clothes with stories. And we sort of said, thank you ever so much, Lee, like you've just had a meeting with God. And then we walked out and then we didn't act on that for another year. And that's kind of like a really insane decision because we should have acted on that straight away. You've got one of the smartest people in advertising of all time who's run some of the biggest brands of all time saying, this is what you should be doing. And we sat on that for a year. And eventually, we did make the right decision. We thought, hey, this this guy probably knows what he's doing. Like He wrote the 1984 Apple ad. He did Dancing People. Like He knows what he's doing. And it took us a year to act on that. So in the in the in the Namibian desert, I acted far too fast and very rashly, (laughs) and back in advertising world, I acted far too slowly. Um, Those are the two definitive things that have changed my life, though, because one led us to start the company, and the other led me to understand that when people tell you the company's dead or wrong or heading in the wrong direction, it might not be true. It might just be their opinion.
0: And at the same time, what I take from the Namibia story too and it, whether it's sports or whether it's business, is that the people who, there's a class of people out there. I have this friend who's done a bunch of, mar- he did like seven marathons in seven days or something crazy like that. Yeah. And the reason why, I, I've always believed, and he's told me this, he's like, I my pain threshold is so much higher. And I see this with entrepreneurs when you're working and it's crazy and it's stressful. It's like, there are certain people who they could put their hand on a flame and hold it there for a minute and a half and their arm would be gone like and some people who just aren't going to do that and i'm not saying that the person who feels doesn't feel the pain is going to have a better life or a longer life probably not actually but will they succeed in a different kind of way probably and so it's just worth thinking about the trade-offs you're making for your you know, health, wealth, and all the other things, right?
1: Well, the, the way I try and think about it, and it's not the most glamorous animal in the world, is I try to be a cockroach. I just try mm. to be absolutely unkillable. Because like, if, you come out of all of the, if you come out of the side of bad things alive, great, you can still compete. <laughs> but if you're dead, you can't compete anymore. So that's a kind of like, guiding philosophy is be a bit more cockroach.
0: You'd love New York City then. Uh, So (laughs) I I wanna talk about this business because as as I was reading up on you, so you have invented a solar charge jacket that was the Time Magazine best inventions list, you made it on that list, a graphene jacket that was a finalist for Fast Company's Innovation by Design Awards, a plant and algae T-shirt, full metal jacket T-shirt, garbage T-shirt, garbage sweater. You got this new sort of Mars jacket that is designed to go to Mars. Two years of R and D. First of all, before we get into the how, just like how do you like how do you make make these things? Like, how do you come up with the ideas? I mean, obviously, you are into extreme athletics, so that informs part of it. But where do these come from?
1: Um, I think I'm just accidentally a sci-fi writer who's fallen into clothing. <laughs> <laughs> what we think a lot about is we basically think it, it all starts from a really simple perspective. We were we were lucky enough. We worked in advertising for a long time. I worked in companies like Adidas and. Um, what I was really fascinated by is everyone is very, very clearly thinking about the next season in order to answer into shareholders or stock exchange or whatever it is, and they're not thinking about the next century. And I just thought, wouldn't it be really funny if like, all of our ideas thought about what does the next century look like? And I thought, if you do that, probably the next season looks looks after itself. And ultimately, like, your place on the stock exchange, if you have a float, will look after itself. If we just focus on the next century, and then once you've made that logical jump, you simply have to ask yourself, what does the next century look like? And, well, what it looks like is it looks like a world of extreme climate change, resource scarcity, space colonization, diseases traveling a world around the world really, really quickly. And once you've got that, then you know what you need to design clothes for. Whereas if you go, you know, if I run a focus group in New York tomorrow with guys who are 25 to 45, do they like red or blue? Like I'm going to get a set answer, right? And from year to year, it's going to change. And maybe green is cool, and maybe red is cool, and maybe Gore-Tex is cool. Um, But we start with what's the future going to look like, and then we just simply think, how do we design against it? And often that will involve chatting to like really really cool friends, like you know you know astronauts or like special forces guys or people who live really extreme lives. And you go, what are you thinking? What do you need? If you were to face this challenge, what would you want? And then, and a lot of it is just being a magpie on the internet. You kind of you take loads of different bits of the future and you try and combine them together. And so sometimes you make quite small jumps, right? So uh, a small jump, interestingly, is the Mars jacket that we built, and like it's not a giant leap to go when you start sending fairly untrained people into space. Which will eventually happen because you're going to have to send up architects and you know developers and designers. It's not going to be astronauts forever. If we're going to really build a space colon- uh, a colonized space, um, they're going to start throwing up. <laughs> like this is what mm. happens <laughs> because your vestibular system goes haywire as soon as you encounter a lack of gravity, and you don't. You suddenly don't have people who've trained in Russia for twenty years going into space. You have relatively normal people, and so those relatively normal people are going to have normal challenges. They're not going to be able to get to sleep. They're going to feel really sick. They're going to want to feel really comfortable. And so we just sort of start to think through the kind of questions a child would think through (laughs) where you go, what are you going to have to do here? And then the trick is aligning those with some of the world's most cutting edge materials where you go, well, what's the most cutting edge material that could deal with this or what's a really funny concept? And I suppose the other way we think about it is like we kind of think in cartoons. We go like if you could draw a cartoon of your idea, it's probably quite good. And if you can't, it's probably too complicated. So if you were to draw a cartoon of our Mars jacket, which comes with a three D printed vomit pocket, which you can unscrew, and then inside mm. is a vomit bag, which is a Ziploc bright orange vomit bag for you to throw up in and then put back in the pocket. Like that's a you have Gary Larson, don't you? Gary Larson's American. Like it's it's a Larson cartoon. It's just a really really silly gag that any ten year old child could draw. So I suppose we try and align sci-fi conceptual thinking about the future with a cartoon a kid could draw. And if you can do that, then you probably have quite an interesting idea. So even like when we built the solar charge jacket, which can it's a material that can store and reemit light. So light from your iPhone, light from sunlight, your Tesla headlights, whatever it is, it can store and reemit that. like. We're, not, we're kids on the back of it. We write kick me and then we put it on someone else. <laughs> like we do silly stuff with it. So one of my favorite things is like high technology with like silly things done on it. Um, so that's how we do it. We, we think very concretely about what the future is going to look like. And then we back,
0: backfill design into that. FOMO. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems or delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. And with rising prices everywhere you look, you got to do the math and save money. Good news, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one of a kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. So head over to netsuite.com/fomo. That's netsuite.com/fomo. netsuite.com/fomo. Tudo bem, meus queridos sapiens. Now that right there was Portuguese, and as you know, I love speaking foreign languages. But I'm not alone. One in 5 Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off that list with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash FOMO. Get up to 60% off at babble.com slash FOMO. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash FOMO. Rules and restrictions may apply. FOMO. Nobody's ever going to forget any of these products, right? These are so memorable and they're kind of things that you want to own. I'd like to say that you're a master of FOMO. It's quite clear, but at (laughs) the same time you are running a business. So I, I guess, is it, accurate to say that you are painting this picture of like, this product is going to be for Mars. But guess what? Today, you can also wear it when you go to Stad on your ski vacation, or you go to New York City in the middle of February, and it's really cold. Like, do you, I guess, does there have to be a present, practical, accessible application as well, that people can still buy the product for today? Yeah.
1: So th- we, we think about it in two ways, because obviously there's like a bunch of products where like, we know realistically that the first Mars jacket we make, like, is that going to go to Mars? Well, humans aren't really going to get there for 30 years. Is that jacket going to be the thing that makes it? Probably not. But like, if we make iteration one now, iteration thirty probably will. I genuinely think we'll be some of the things we're working on behind the scenes are really, really far advanced. And so I think we have a stand a fair chance because we'll be ahead of everyone else. But you're absolutely right. Lots and lots of our stuff simply has to have earthly applications. So the way we think about it though is life on Earth is becoming more extreme. So if you think about it, the kind of things that like adventurers and explorers used to go and seek out are the kind of things that lots of people experience today, whether it's floods or fires or the isolation people got from COVID, living conditions are kind of getting really extreme and really unpredictable. So, yes, for Earth, we make all sorts of things. So we make kind of like our hundred year range, which is designed to outlive you. We make a range out of garbage because the idea is like you should be able to make things out of um, materials that have already been thrown away. Um, We make um, like equator gear for incredibly hot weather. So we look at like bits of Earth that we think are going to be representative of more of Earth, like the equator, which is like super super hot and super wet, and it's most likely that large parts of the world are going to become like that. So we then design equator gear, which is designed for those kind of conditions that can then be worn anywhere it's hot. Or another example would be like our waterfall proof range. And so one of the things that's you know increasing is these mega storms. So California obviously gets hit by mega storms and like lots of different parts of the world do where kind of it's not rain anymore. It's kind of like the sea falling from the sky, and so we built the like the most waterfall. Uh, well, we call it waterfall proof, but it's just like the most waterproof gear ever built. So yeah, we take on lots and lots of challenges that you'll find here on Earth and build really cool clothing for it. But you know, on the side, we also like to make apocalypse jackets that can resist lava, <laughs> for the end of the world and chemicals, <laughs> because it's just fun. And we're basically children. <laughs> Einstein had this brilliant thing. I'm sure you know it. He, he said, if you, I think it was him. He said, if you can't explain your idea to a 10 year old, you probably don't understand your idea. <laughs> and so we always try our ideas out on our kids <laughs> where you go, Hey, we're building an apocalypse jacket and you can pour lava on it and it's going to be okay. <laughs> and they're like, like any kid can get that right. That's just funny.
0: Yeah. it's it, 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 So it, it's what I find so interesting is you and your brother, Nick, came out of advertising. And so the fact that you can talk about and dream and invent and tell the story of these products and come up with super creative things that are on the vanguard, it makes a lot of sense to me. Like, I, 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 I'm I, not surprised, right? You know, And you're also adventurers yourself. So you kind of like living the product in your own yeah. lives. What's yeah. harder, and the part that I think is like, I'm very curious about is how do you then... You know, you're talking about very technical stuff. Like you're talking about products of fabric and building next generation capabilities and physical goods. And that stuff's really hard. When you start this business, you don't have that resident expertise. And a lot of people have really smart ideas. Like I, one time, you know, I was like, I should build a camera that, you know, that flies in the air and takes selfies for you. Like, I don't know how to do that. And so I didn't do that business. How did you, by the way, it's a terrible example and nobody should build that business. But anyway, how did you get it right on the product side? Or maybe, I mean, did you have times when you just completely just messed everything up?
1: Well, the 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 killer ingredient for us was absolute naivety. And that was the thing that really enabled us to start the business because we were simply so naive, we didn't know not to. And um, I think, Uh, along with bringing in highly technical people, which I'll talk about in a minute, it was the naivety that got us through. At no point did we think, hang on a minute, if this hasn't been cracked by Nike or Adidas, maybe we can't do it. Mm. We just thought, yeah, we'll have a go at that. And um, I think because we approached it so laterally, that was really incredibly helpful for us. Um, and because we didn't think from a commercial perspective to start with, that was also really helpful. Like if we'd wanted to come out of the gates and go, hey, in year one, we're going to be at 100 million revenue. Like that would have just been a really, really complex challenge where, where we didn't do that. What we did is we raised an incredibly small amount of money, like you know, just above the salaries we were being paid just to start two pieces of gear. And those, those pieces of gear were like so, so uncommercial. One of them was a pink hoodie that zipped up over your face and it had kind of these asymmetrical pockets so you could give yourself a hug. It had a pink visor to calm you down. It came with a pink noise soundtrack. And um, John Glazer took it onto the Jimmy Fallon show just out of, we didn't even know John. We didn't know Jimmy. It just happened out of, but it happened because it looked so weird. It was just so different. And what we saw, but like we didn't have anything like your your listeners that run companies like we didn't have like SEO. We barely had a website like we had no link to the Jimmy Fallon show. There's no way of people kind of like it wasn't like orders could go through the roof that day because no one could find us. And so um, a huge amount of naivety was the key ingredient at the start and just approaching things really laterally. So what I could do is I did know how to do more interesting research. I knew how to research, okay, kind of there's this color pink and prison cells were painted in that pink. And hey, there's, this seems to be this thing about pink noise relaxing you, whereas white noise is used to torture. If I can combine these things, then I can make something really interesting. And I can make a piece of clothing that interacts with your parasympathetic nervous system. And that's just like a really weird bunch of ideas. But what it didn't require is any crazy specialist material knowledge. Mm. Now, for the first few years, I did rely on a couple of people. I brought a couple of clothing people really close into the business. I gave them some shares. I asked them to help us. And they were from some very, very big, cool brands. And they were just like, Wonderful mentors and guardrails, guide rails to make sure that we didn't just mess everything up. Um, but a lot of it was um, based on a huge amount of hard work and our own research because we didn't have enough money to like put in a like a ten person team to start making clothing. So we relied on the goodwill of some factories we went to talk to, some really cutting edge factories where we just went in with a deck, just like we would have done in advertising. It's like, hey, we're trying to build the future. You seem like you want to build the future too. Do you want to help us? And we picked the guys who did um, who'd built Michael Phelps' swimsuit, the really crazy mm. speedo one that eventually got banned. And we're like, look, we want to do really advanced stuff like this. Do you want to do that? And obviously they're not going to be persuaded. You, you can't turn up with $10 million, right? And go, hey, you know, let's open, let's open up a f- bit of the factory just for us. You turn up with a bunch of ambition, a really cool idea, and you go, Would you like to be part of this? And that's how we winged it at the start of persuading lots of people with vision as opposed to cash and you know as the brand has grown you know that that's changed now lots of people come to us and want to work with us we no longer have to sort of go cap in hand to factories and sort of beg them to make a really small run of something um but yeah a few technical people was the answer but really it was a lot of naivety, vision and lateral thinking that really got us there. And it's only as the brands advanced over the last few years that we've got into some of the most like really staggering technical materials like the graphene and the stuff that you know absorbs sunlight. Uh, And we uh, are now off the back of that, we're now working with scientists in some of the the, the craziest materials on earth today that we'll sort of unveil over the next three, four months.
0: FOMO, FOMO. It's important to note You just said something that may not be obvious to a lot of people, but you had the humility to go to the people you wanted to work with and pitch them your dream, even though you were going to be paying them money. And I think that right there, a lot of people, when they start that process, even though they're kind of an up and comer, nobody knows who they are, you you think you're just going to make those calls, you're going to get those calls back. No, like you have to give an example of, you have to sell the dream. You have to create the FOMO. You have to give social proof. Like here's, we're credible people. You know, we're not just like rolling in off the street. We actually are, we're going to pay our bills. We're going to build something interesting. We're going to be your partner. And having that humility is the way you get your foot in the door because people have options, right? And so you've got to convince them, like they're not wasting their time with you. Now, I want to ask you about this Jimmy Fallon thing because I've heard these stories before. You always hear about a business. They get this like unexpected media moment. And I'm curious, and people just think, "Okay, oh, you're, you're made from then on. It's like th- there was the day before and the day after. <laughs> but it, it can be a sugar high, too. How were you able to really capitalize on that? And if so, how did you do that? Or did it just was it just like an awesome moment of validation, but you, know, you still kind of had to go back to the grindstone the next day? Um, well, it's
1: kind of a bit of both. So certainly because it happened so early in the business, I mean, literally two months in, I mean, we honestly, we barely had a working website. We had all of our clothing in some weird lock up in a very dodgy part of London. Um, My brother and I still had to wheel suitcases full of gear to the post office and fill out the forms because basically all the orders went to America and we had to fill out all the customs forms by hand. Each form took 20 minutes. And so like if Jimmy Fallon generated 40 orders, you'd be thinking, oh, wow, I'm going to spend all day (laughs) in the post office. So um, on a very practical level, it did very little. It sold a few pink hoodies to some people who thought, hey, that's funny. I'm going to wear them to a party. You know, that's the kind of audience it hit. Um, however, what it did cement certainly for us and for investors as well, uh, a late, uh, later stage investors, obviously people who kind of cared about this stuff. Um, what it said was with a bit of kind of lateral thinking and creativity, you can create moments that other brands would have to pay tens of millions of dollars for. Now, how much, how much did getting on Jimmy Fallon cost us? Well, John Glazer's people sent us an email. We spent $48 on shipping we made sure we sent over a couple of hoodies that were their size. So for $48 and basically the price of two free hoodies, you get on the biggest TV show on earth. And so what it, really, what it was, was it was a really wonderful proof point of doing things that no one else is doing is very likely to attract attention. And that still stands today. Like it absolutely stands. It's kind of now it's called break the Internet, isn't it? And at the time it kind of blacked back that term, like FOMA hadn't been coined, I don't think, Um, where it's like, wow, what is this thing? This is just like too strange, too weird, too pink. Um, But no, on a very practical level, very little, it made mine and Nick's jobs hard. We had to wheel those suitcases of pink hoodies um, to the post office in and out every day. So really, it was more of a proof to us internally and to people externally. Wow, if you get this right, you're onto something. And to, to this day, we still, like, I, I was in advertising for a long time. And, you know, you see millions of dollars wasted every day as just a matter of course. And still, like, one of the funniest things I think we ever did was we built a, uh, for our company, for Volaback, we built a, a thing called a deep sleep cocoon to help you sleep in deep space. We wanted to tell Elon about it because we're like, well, there's only one person. The It's an audience of one. And so we found a billboard site right outside SpaceX in Hawthorne. And we just did a big red poster and it goes, we finished our jacket, how's your rocket going? Like, that's still one of my favorite things. And it costs like $4,000 to basically do a joke. But you go like, it's a really well spent joke. And like a week later, we were invited to NASA and we got to meet the guys at JPL. And we're still friends to this day and working on some projects because we decided to tell a joke, basically. And so I really, really believe in the power of doing really funny things that creates serendipitous moments from which innovation can be born. And you know, as a VC, like that's crazy hard to write in a business plan, right? Hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use comedy to create serendipity in order to drive innovation. That's like that you, so you walk into any room and people are going to tell you you're insane because it's like, that's not how planning works. But like so many of the elements of what we've done, that is how it's worked. And over the course of the next few months, we'll be bringing out a lot of those ideas where it is pure serendipity based on things that are quite things that we just find funny it's not much more
0: complicated than that <laughs> any word from elon any response not yet <laughs> come on I no, mean, I'm, this is, response. I'm waiting <laughs> So, i mean he's so busy trying he's to buy busy. twitter and all that sort of silliness now I, I will say what i what i really appreciate and i think you you you're, you said this and i just want to hone in on it is for everybody who 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 thinks about, you know, I want to get this one person to use my product or talk about it on TV or whatever. What I've learned, in, at least in my kind of world of books and content and stuff, is like you think you're going to get one yeah. TV hit or one article or whatever, and it's going to make you a made man or woman or that TED Talk or all that stuff. None of it does. It doesn't. It just nothing like, no, there's no like golden chalice handed to you what it does give you is a story and a marketing opportunity that you can then take to generate social proof or buzz yeah. or audience whatever because people will take you seriously when you've had that kind of exposure and so it's then on you to say okay here's this good thing that happened I can't just sit back and wait for the next thing how do I use this thing to create the next media moment the next opportunity the next excited you know influencer and if you do that it's like climbing a ladder you may get to the top or you may fall off and you know thank god you've got one of um Steve's hoodies on and so it saved your life
1: (laughs) I I couldn't agree more it's 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 the equivalent of like an athlete saying hey with this one training session I'm going to win Olympic gold it's like well that's just not how it works and so we had it we had it you're absolutely right so in in advertising we had my brother and I believe that there's never a silver bullet there's never one thing that does everything you want to do. And in advertising, we had used to have this thing, and it's still there today. It's called Cannes Advertising Festival, where like big awards are given out to the big agencies who've done like one big idea. And everyone creates a case study, and it's a three-minute film that said, hey, we did this one cool thing, and then the whole world watched. It's all nonsense. It like it's so, so rare. What actually happened is you did about a hundred things. One of them happened to work. You hadn't predicted which one it was gonna be, and then you've back rationalized. And once you're in business, you you see it for yourself. Because in advertising, it's a very closeted world and you just control this one element of what your client does and you think you're controlling everything. You're not. Once you're in a business, it's just thousands and thousands of small decisions constantly, some of which you'll get right and some of which you'll get wrong. So, yes, I couldn't agree. It is far more Sisyphean pushing a rock up a hill than people imagine. And we've had plenty of moments that people would have considered really big and really transformational. And you're absolutely right. If you think of them as doors to the next opportunity, brilliant. If you think they're going to make you and someone hands you a gold medal, I think you're
0: done for. Now you work with your brother and you mentioned him a bunch Nick and who I had the pleasure of meeting at this conference brilliant minds over in Sweden and so we connected and that's you know how the whole conversation began. Some people might say twin brothers who work together in the advertising world beforehand they're just going to be exactly the same you know there's going to be no sort of additionality of having two of them just have one. And I'm curious is that true? Like, how, how are you guys, you know, sort of complimentary? And also, how is it working with a twin? Is this something that you had always anticipated starting a business together? Or is it, is it something that you've like gotten into and you're like, wow, this is a lot harder than I thought. Like, how does that relationship work? So. Um- Having worked it, so we're 43 now and we worked in advertising from the, together
1: from the age of about 21. And we started the company on our mid-30s, late 30s. And so we'd already had the benefit of working together for around 15 years. So we'd called each other all the names under the sun <laughs> by the time we started our business together. So we'd basically learned on other people's money that we could work together and that it would work and that we were complementary, which I'll I'll talk about in a minute about how we work together. So by the time we started the business, I I considered it relatively low risk. The way I pitched it to investors is at least if one of us gets run over by a bus, there's another one of us like it's a two for one deal, basically. Um, But the reality is, yeah, we're actually really, really different. And I think there was some kind of like um, Darwinian Response of like when we were young, we were, we became quite different quite quickly. And he's incredibly visual; he thinks in pictures. I'm incredibly verbal; I think in words. And so I've been led down a far more strategic, logical route. And um, yeah, you mentioned your brother was in music and thinks very differently to you. I, I have that. It's like it's like working with a jazz musician. His brain goes in all sorts of different places. Someone was describing it the other day in in relation to chess moves. And um, there's something called knight's move thinking where you basically your brain moves in this kind of L shape where you start off in a logical place and then you end up somewhere else entirely. He thinks in night's move thoughts. And I don't. I think in logical stepped approaches. And so we learned in advertising that we could work together. And then we've used that model in our business, which is I'm very, very strategically focused. And he's very creatively focused. And we've tried occasionally to sort of step on each other's toes, but it just doesn't really work. And we're quite we're quite strict now with how we work but the, the 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 beauty was learning on other people's time and other people's money i think if we'd gone and started a business together from scratch having never worked together i would consider that pretty high risk but we'd kind of proved it out we kind of gone like hey we have a 15 year working relationship and we haven't killed each other yet
0: it's always time for that all right the uh, the the company is volaback you can find out more at volaback.com that's v o l l e B-A-K.com. You can also find them on socials at Volaback. Steve Tidball, CEO and co-founder of Volaback, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Patrick. That was great fun. FOMO. If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it to your friends. And as always, you can find me on Instagram at Patrick J. McGinnis, on Twitter at PJ McGinnis, and on the web at FOMOSapiens.com or PatrickMcGinnis.com, where you can get all kinds of free resources to live a more decisive and entrepreneurial life. FOMO Sapiens is recorded in New York City. Theme music is by Mike McGinnis, and editing and post-production is by Josh Elstro. If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it to your friends. And as always, you can find me at FOMOSapiens.com and at PatrickMcGinnis.com. To advertise on FOMO Sapiens, reach out to contact at FOMOSapiens.com.